Well, good morning. Uh, if you're watching this online instead of being here at church on January 7th, it's because we just got some snow yesterday. Uh, some of us live in areas where the plows come really quick and we're able to get out and, and go about our days uh, fairly quickly. Others uh, are probably still waiting for the plow and even a couple of people might have to plow their way down their own driveways before we uh, can get them to the road. So um, we are recording this uh, sermon today in case that there is that snow and we are really happy to have all of you here uh, this morning. Um, and it seems kind of appropriate, this idea that we, we might have to slow down because of the snow, uh, because our message today is uh, talking a little bit about patience and talking a little bit about uh, waiting on God. Uh, mostly, though, it's talking about God's patience with humanity. And we're nearing the end of our sermon series, What to Expect When You're Christianing. And that's a walkthrough of the New Testament book of James, which is thought to be the first book of the New Testament to be written sometime between 45 and 48 AD. And that's about 10 to 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I don't think sometimes that we think about what that means, um, especially uh, when we are kind of reading through the Bible. Uh, back then, Christians didn't have the Bible. Um, we read uh, in the book of Acts in the New Testament that uh, we see the seeds of the, the history of the church. We see uh, the start where Jesus uh, gathers his uh, people, his disciples, and he gives them instructions before he goes back to heaven. And he's taught all through his uh, life that he is going to come back but he has also talked about building his church. And the book of Acts tells us about the building of his church. And it leads us from uh, his ascension into heaven, where 120 people or more watched him ascend into heaven. And it goes to uh, the day of Pentecost, where 120 people in an upper room at the temple are baptized by the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, is what the Bible says. And they went out immediately into the temple and encountered thousands of people. And all of those people listened to a really, really short sermon from the Apostle Peter. And after they heard that sermon, the Bible says that 3,000 of the people who were there that day gave their lives to Jesus Christ. They started to walk in faith and they started to join his church. And then the book of Acts kind of moves on and it talks about how the church grew out of Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth as Jesus said that it would. And I know you're probably asking, why am I telling you all of this? Well, I'm glad that you've asked. Something that I think we don't remember sometimes is that Christ's church grew for years without the benefit of any written account of Jesus, any written account of his teachings. Everything the church knew about Jesus, they learned from the eyewitnesses who lived with him, who saw him live and die and rise again, and who saw him ascend to heaven. 
And one of the reasons why nothing was written down at the time, and we can read this in the book of Acts, is because the church was experiencing severe persecution. And Christians were dispersed from their homes. They were chased from Jerusalem. They were chased from Judea and all of these places because they were being tortured. They were being jailed. They were being killed because they had faith in Jesus Christ. And we call that movement the great dispersion. And they ran from this persecution that they were experiencing to settle into these strange new places. Places where they didn't know the customs. They didn't know the language sometimes. They didn't know how to live a Christian life in the society that they had ended up settling down in. And that's where James came in. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And he had intimate knowledge about Jesus. He had intimate knowledge about his teachings. James knew what his brother had said and what he had done. And James started hearing about these churches that had started cropping up all over the place after the dispersion. And he learned that there was a lot going on, a lot that these churches were doing that were contrary to his brother's teachings. And so he wrote this letter. And over the past few months, we've been walking through James and talking about what Christ expects of his church. And this morning, we're near the end. We're going to be looking this morning at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. And this section starts like this. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And James is getting to the part of Jesus' life where he talked about coming back. And if you read the ends of some of the Gospels, Jesus talks about what's going to happen in the last day. What's going to happen when he comes back? And James is saying that his coming is at hand. Now, a lot of people question this idea of the coming of the Lord being at hand. And I've heard people say, well, it's been uh, 2,000 years, and the coming of the Lord has been at hand for 2,000 years. What's taking so long? But if we continue to read the Scripture the Apostle Peter actually gives us the answer to that question, what's taking so long? In 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, we read, but do not overlook this one fact, that the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And then Peter goes on, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God's timing is not our timing. And if we read Peter literally here, Jesus has only been gone for a little over two days. If a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, it's been a little over 2,000 years. That's about two days, if we read this literally. But the real purpose of Peter saying all of this about God's timing is to talk about God's patience. 
God is patient with us. He is patient with a broken world because he is not desiring that any should experience eternal damnation. He wants us to experience eternal life with him. He wants us to repent of the sin that we have. And he wants us to come to him. And he is very patient about that. God is not slow to fulfill his promise. That's what Peter says. And this promise is the salvation of all who would come to repentance. So every day we are one day closer to the Lord's coming. Unless we read it like Peter, in which case we are only about one three hundred and sixty-five thousandth of a day closer. But whatever the case, James calls us to be patient for that day. And he's telling us to wait. Wait for the Lord. Just like the farmer waits for the crops to come in after they plant the seeds. And we've got some farmers in our congregation. Some farmers are watching this right now. And you know how long it seems sometimes from the time you first plow up that ground and lay those seeds until you get to the harvest. And in between the planting and the harvest, there is so much work to do. But even through that work, we have to be patient. We have to wait for that corn and that wheat and those fruits and those vegetables to mature, to come to their fullness. Just like God is waiting for the world to come to its fullness. But James continues in verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, there's that theme of God being patient. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He wants us. He wants us to experience eternal life with him. And James is continuing this theme of patience by telling the church not to grumble against one another because the judge is at the door. And the judge we know is Jesus Christ and is God the Father. And he gives us this example, and not a lot of people put this instruction, this idea of not grumbling against one another. We don't put that together with this example, but if we look closely, we'll see a theme here in James. He mentions the prophets being an example of suffering and patience. And then he mentions Job. And why does he mention Job? Because Job was a prophet. Now, we're not talking about a prophet like many people think. A lot of people think prophet and they think somebody who predicts future events. But in Scripture, a prophet is simply someone who proclaims God's word. And Job was a man who deeply, deeply loved God. We read in Job chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from all evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. 
The passage goes on to describe Job's wealth. He had so many donkeys, and he had so many cattle, and he had so many servants. And then it talks about Job's habit. See, his, his children would get together, and they would have these feasts. And after the feasts were over, Job would make a habit of taking burnt offerings and sacrificing them to God, just in case one of his children happened to sin while they were there at that feast. This is the, the attitude that Job had toward God. And it is the love that he had for his children that he wanted to make sure God Please forgive my children for anything that they may have done wrong, even if they didn't realize that it was wrong. Please accept this burnt sacrifice on their behalf. Job was an upright man who feared God. And he was so upright, and he feared God and obeyed God so closely that Satan himself went before God the Father and accused him of playing favorites with Job. And we read in Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And then Satan dares God, he says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is the dare that Satan puts up. And to make a very long story short, God allows Satan to take everything that Job has, all of his land, all of his cattle, his servants, and his children who are at one of these feasts when the house collapses on top of them, killing all seven of his children. And God allows Satan to do all of this so that Satan can test his theory, so that Satan can really see, is Job going to turn his back on God once he loses everything? And when he doesn't turn his back on God, Satan asks for permission to touch his body, to give him these painful, horrible boils all over his, his body. The Bible says from his head all the way down to his feet. And he sits there and he scrapes his skin with broken pieces of pottery just to get some relief from these boils. And it gets so bad that Job's wife comes to Job and she says, why don't you curse God and die? These are the things that Job was dealing with. And then, after all of that, his wife, we have to assume, is not going to be in the picture anymore. His wife may not have left him, but she's certainly not going to try to help him. So he has three friends who come and try to comfort him in his time of need. And if you're not familiar with the story of Job, I really I, I encourage you to read it. It's, it's a little long, it's a little rambling in spots, but it just kind of gives this idea of how 
our friends might try to help in situations where we are suffering. So Job's friends, they come to his house and they sit with him. The Bible says for seven days and seven nights without saying anything. They just sat with him. They watched him as he was scraping his skin and as he was moaning in agony. And then finally, after seven days and seven nights are over, Job is the first one to speak. And when Job speaks, his, his speech basically says he wishes he was never born. He wishes that he was never born. He's suffering so badly. But he didn't curse God. But he did wish that he was never born. And his friends, after Job has, has talked about this for a while, one by one, his friends start grumbling about Job. And they start judging Job. And they tell him things like, well, you must have done something really wrong against God for him to strike you down like this. Nobody can, nobody can sin and not have God strike them down. And Job keeps arguing, but I haven't done anything. There is nothing that I have done against God. And his friends keep saying, well, there must be something. And they start blaming him and accusing him and grumbling against him. And this goes on for like 35, 36 chapters of Job and his friends going back and forth with his friends judging him and grumbling against him. And then the judge comes to the door. The Lord God himself comes on the scene and challenges Job and his friends to defend themselves against what they have been saying. And this is what James is talking about. Christians, very sadly, often have very judgmental things to say about each other, not even about the people that, that don't know God. They have a lot of judgmental things to say about people who do know God. There are people who believe that if you're not a certain sect or a certain religion or a certain denomination within the Christian sphere, that you are not really a Christian. And I've had experience with this. I've seen this happen firsthand. Well, if you don't convert to this, then, then you're not really a Christian. Or if you don't go to this particular denomination of church and believe exactly what they think, there's no way that you're a Christian. And this happens time and time again. But now I want you to imagine two groups of Christians, and they're standing on opposite sides from one another, and they are hurling all of this grumbling and all of these insults and all of this judgment up against one another for days. And then the judge shows up. God, the judge, which James has said in previous uh, chapters in his book, God is the only judge. We're not supposed to judge. God is the judge. And imagine God showing up. And God did to, his, to Job and his friends. He starts like this. This is the first thing that God says when he gets to Job and his friends. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this 
that's speaking on my behalf when they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. That's what God is saying. How dare you speak on my behalf and you don't even know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I have done. Why are you grumbling against one another? We're not called to grumble. We're called to grow in wisdom and knowledge in the Holy Spirit. And when we read the book of Job, a lot of people say uh, there's this phrase, the patience of Job, and that's kind of made its way into our everyday vocabulary. The patience of Job. But the book of Job isn't about the patience of Job. The book of Job is about the patience of God. See, God could have come down and, and he's heard everything that Job and his friends have said and he realized, he says that he you know, understands Job and that Job is saying all of the right things and his friends are saying all of the wrong things. And God wants to smite his friends. And Job says a prayer for them. God actually tells them, if Job prays for you and asks for forgiveness on your behalf, I'm going to spare you. And that's what Job does. But the book of Job is about the patience of God. And he lists all of the things that he has done. And he asks them, were you there when I created the universe? Were you there when I raised the mountains out of the land? Were you there when I separated the heavens from the heavens? And he asks about his creation. Are you able to put a hook in Leviathan's mouth? And Leviathan was this great sea creature that was unfightable, unbeatable, uncatchable that God created and that God could control. So the book of Job is about the patience of God. And what James is telling us is that we are to have Patience like God has. That we're not supposed to grumble against one another. That we're not supposed to judge one another. We're supposed to have the patience that God has for each other. Remember, God is so patient that he does not want any to perish. He does not want anyone to go to hell. And we should be that way. Instead of judging, instead of grumbling, we should be coming together and we should be worshiping God and we should be praying to God and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal God to us. Not just yelling back and forth at each other and telling each other why we're wrong or why they're wrong and we're right. James finishes this section of the letter like this in James 5.12. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Falling under condemnation is just another way to say being judged by God. And it's, it's interesting because it sounds like James is just completely shifting gears with this statement, but he really isn't. You see, the end of the book of Job shows us God speaking about the world he created and how none of us were there when he created it and none of us can control creation except for whatever power God puts in our hands to control. Yes, I can pull a weed. 
God has given me that power to be able to pull a weed. God has given us certain power over his creation, but we don't have absolute power. And when James says, do not swear by heaven or by earth, he's reminding Christians that swearing on anything, swearing to God, swearing on the life of your children, swearing on anything in heaven or in earth is simply another example of us showing our ignorance in the face of God's patience. So what he's saying is, you're not supposed to swear by heaven or by earth because you can't control heaven and earth. If I make an oath, if I make a vow, and I say, you know, I, I vow on the lives of my children, well, what's going to happen if I can't make that promise come true? Am I going to kill my children? Do I have that power? And these are the things that James wants us to think about. He's not just saying things that the church is doing wrong. He wants the church to know the right way to have relationship with God. He wants us to stop using God and using his creation in ways that would be contrary to what God wills and what God wants. And he says, instead, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's it. That's all. Let your words be truthful. Let your promises to others be kept and show that you have that integrity. Show that you have that faith in God that says, I'm going to be honest with you. And I don't have to swear to God and I don't have to swear on anything and I don't have to swear at all. I just have to tell you, yes, this is the truth. No, I'm not going to do this thing. We don't have to embellish. We don't have to use God as some sort of a, a, a bargaining chip or some sort of, you know, we know better because we know God. We're supposed to be relating to one another in the church and outside of the church. We're supposed to be relating to one another as God relates to us with love, with mercy, with patience, these are the things that James is calling Christians to. And next week, we're going to finish the book of James by looking at the prayer of faith. Uh, and the prayer of faith is just such a powerful uh, ending to this uh, message that Paul, or that I'm sorry, that James has been uh, sending to the people who are reading. I hope that you can uh, join us next week for that. Hopefully, we can join each other in person at the church, uh, but. God willing, right? Like we learned last week, if it's God's will that we're not here, if he wants to throw some more snow on us, if he wants to do something else, that's up to him. What's up to us is that we continue to gather and worship, whether we're here or whether we're at home watching this video, whether we're listening to the audio from the website, whatever we're doing, and not just on Sundays. Every single day when we're reading our Bible, when we're studying our Bible, when we're praying, when we're living our lives. Let's live our lives with the patience and the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
We thank you for your creation. We thank you for the rain, and we thank you for the snow, and we thank you for the sun, and we thank you for everything that, that you have provided for us. The food that grows, the animals that grow, that we can use as food. We thank you for everything that you provide for us. And Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that not only have you provided all of these things, you have also provided a way for us to get out of our sin nature, to be able to repent and turn away from those things that are not pleasing to you. And we know that that only way is through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your son to die so that we might live. And we thank you for sending him to rise again so that we might know that it's evidence that we can have eternal life with you if we would repent. And Father, most of all, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that for you, a year is as a thousand days and a thousand days or a thousand years. We just thank you for that. We thank you that you are waiting for us. But Father, we also know that at some point, one day, you're going to send your son back. And Father, we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when we can see him face to face, when we can see you, when your dwelling place is with us. Father, I ask that you would keep everyone safe as the snow and the rain and the ice and everything is going on. I ask you to uh, give them safe travels, um, help them to stay warm, help them to uh, help others who might not be able to stay warm. Give us... Uh, just an idea of where there is a need so that we can go and meet it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. God bless you this week.